You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Welcome back to The Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining me, friends, and I trust that you're enjoying this season of the podcast as we've been featuring different voices and uh, themes that go along with my new book, Away With Words, uh, using our online conversations for good. Uh, The book is now available for sale wherever you buy books. You can go to awaywithwordsbook.com and find more information about that. My next guest is one that I know that you're going to appreciate and really is is kind of in concert with the themes we've been talking about. How do we have discussions online? How do we use these online platforms for good? How do we be both bold and courageous and civil? And I wanted to have uh, my friend Ryan Putman on. Ryan is the Dean of Faculty at Williams Baptist College in Arkansas. He's an Associate Professor of Theology at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, But he has a really important book called When Doctrine Divides the People of God. And what I like about what he's doing in this book is he's setting kind of the parameters for how Christians should discuss and debate Christian doctrine. It seems like there are a couple of different mistakes we make when doing this. I think one mistake we make is this, that any discussion of orthodoxy or doctrine of the guardrails of our faith, what what do you need to believe in order to be a Christian? What are the kind of foundations of our faith, which are very important? A lot of people talk about doctrine as if it's this dry, dusty thing, and people will say, well, we don't care about doctrine, we just care about love. Well, that's actually a doctrine, and doctrine tells us more about the God who loves us and about the Christ who saved us. So there are folks who think that if if you ever have a conversation about doctrine or even are concerned about a denial of a doctrine, slippage of a doctrine, then you're, you're kind of being mean and you're being divisive, and I think that's wrong. On the other hand, there's a kind of really caustic debating that goes on online among Christians where people who are not arguing in good faith but are just kind of always out to find the next heretic. And listen, there are heretics, and I think public heresy should be met with public response. Uh, But that's different than I think a kind of tabloid-style, angry wanting to just find heretics and cast them out, and people who disagree with us on secondary and tertiary things, calling them heretics. Well, Ryan is great here because what he does is he helps us. Uh, He helps us decide and see from church history and from the scripture which doctrines are vital that we must fight for, as Timothy was urged by Paul to earnestly contend for the faith. At the same time, He talks about the secondary doctrines that are important within certain communities. For instance, I'm a Southern Baptist. I'm a Baptist, so we we really believe in baptism by immersion. Uh, There's secondary doctrines like that that are important in communities. My Presbyterian brothers who faithfully preach the gospel and are good men and women, they have a different view of baptism. So we debate these issues, and they form communities, but we do come together uh, on sharing the gospel and on the core of Christian orthodoxy. And then there's even tertiary issues that even within a church communion where we agree on a lot of things, there's there's differing views on things like uh, the age of the earth or the sign gifts or the end times and exactly how all that's going to play out. 
And so Ryan really helps us decide how do we have healthy discussions about these issues? How do we avoid a kind of angry, nasty name calling that often goes on that is unhelpful? And, and I think at times slanderous and sinful. So he's here to help us uh, with that. His book uh, is really important. It's called When Doctrine Divides the People of God. You'll find a link in our show notes page. But I don't want to take any more time here because I want to encourage us to get right to this discussion, this important discussion, I think, with Ryan Putnam. Well, I'm glad to have on the Way Home podcast, uh, Ryan Putman, who is the Associate Professor of Theology and Culture at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, also uh, Pastor of Teaching and Preaching and Vision at First Baptist Kenner there in the New Orleans area. And more importantly, though, I'm having him on to talk about his brand new book uh, about theological uh, disagreement. It's it's a book I encourage you uh, to get. It's called When Doctrine Divides the People of God, an Evangelical Approach to Theological Diversity. And I wanted to have you on for two reasons. One, because I really like your stuff and I read you and follow you. And I think this is important. But number two, this is part of a special series I'm going to be doing on uh, the way Christians communicate online and the way we interact uh, in conjunction with my new book called Away with Words. Uh, Ryan, first of all, you know, it's interesting when you mention when doctrine divides, I mean, on the one hand, those of us who really believe in, you know, that doctrine matters and that it's important for Christians to, you know, contend for the faith, as it says in Jude, and it, to pass down, you know, these things that, that Paul talks about with Timothy, this is body of truth from generation to generation that shapes the Christian faith. But on the other hand, there there are areas of the Christian life and practice that are not top tier issues. They're secondary and tertiary issues that are still very important that shape kind of faith traditions, shape Christian commitments in certain communities, but are not to the top level. I I think for a lot of Christians, it's hard for us to understand how we can be both resolute on orthodoxy and yet open-handed on some of the issues that are important to us, but that maybe other Christians might disagree. Explain kind of that dynamic and how you see it uh, from your perspective. Well, I think one of the primary things that I wanted to do in this book was talk about the ways that we come to theological disagreement, because I think if we are better informed about that, um, we're less likely to have some of the, some of the attitudes towards others who disagree with us that we, uh, that we might otherwise have, because I think for a lot of people, the perception is I open up the Bible and, and, and theology just spills out and uh, they don't take into consideration the fact that the Bible has to be interpreted and that uh, that we are limited in certain ways in our ability as interpreters. It's not to say we don't have the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not to say that scripture uh, is unclear. Uh, what I want to say is that scripture is intelligible. We can make sense of it. The Holy Spirit does guide us and help us apply and, and, and understand scripture in the sense that it helps us see ourselves in it and convicts us of sin, points us to our need for Jesus. But that doesn't mean that, that our interpretation of scripture is automatic. So if, if we have a, if we have a, a brother or a sister who disagrees with us on a controversial passage, say like Revelation 20, 
or 1 Corinthians 14 or even Genesis 1, you know, I can't automatically presume that they're somehow in sin because they disagree with me or they're stupid because they don't see what I so clearly see in the text. And kind of having a mirror put in, in, in our direction, showing us the way we read the Bible really sort of softens some of those some of those disagreements over secondary and tertiary issues. There are things in scripture that are very clear. Um, things like, you know, the deity of Jesus, the gospel, um, salvation by grace through faith. These are things that evangelicals all agree on. But but some of the minor points about church government, baptism, the millennium, whatever, those are things that we don't always have all the interpretive keys or clues that we need. And so we're just we're just kind of working together, struggling together to make sense of those things. Yeah, I mean, I think of something that uh, Dr. Moeller, Dr. Albert Moeller came up with, you know, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago now. It's called yeah. theological triage, right. which is such a great, in my view, a great way of putting it where, you know, how to sort through the various uh, concentric circles of, in terms of doctrines, right. Is, is that still a good formulation in your mind in terms of how to, how to proceed yeah, with I mean, some I, of these I, things? I talk about Dr. Moeller's triage. In fact, I, I got to have an extensive conversation with Dr. Moeller in preparation for the book, just kind of understanding and unpacking what he means by, by different aspects of the triage illustration. His mother was a triage nurse in an emergency room. And that's really sort of the imagery that that sort of stuck out in his mind as he was developing uh, the triage. And of course, the way the triage works is the triage, like any emergency room triage, it sorts um, cases by their importance. Uh, if you have a heart attack or a gunshot wound, you're going to see a doctor first. If you have the sniffles, you might be waiting a couple of hours to see a doctor. Um, but in the case of a theological triage, there are some things that are absolutely important for us to address first, these sort of first tier issues. Um, and then you have, you know, second tier issues, which really sort of define our traditions and our denominations. Like for us as Baptists, that might be, that might be, you know, baptism of the believer or, or for, for a different tradition, like a, like a, a, an assemblies of God tradition, it might be an emphasis on the on the spiritual gifts. But those are things that you know sort of make up a local church or a tradition. And then there's that third tier category of things that we can kind of agree to disagree about in a local church context. I think for the most part, this is a really uh, helpful model for thinking about uh, theology. Though you know, I might go the way Gavin Ortland does and his recent book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On and Go to a Fourth Tier, because I think there's even some issues that are that are so speculative and so inconsequential that there's no, no reason whatsoever to ever put up a fuss about because we're we're just sort of in a place where we don't know. And you know, I, I an example of that would be the question like whether or not uh whether or not God is in time or not. You know, that's a that's a that's a thing that theologians like to debate about, but it's it's never going to be an issue that I think uh, should ever should ever be a, a dividing line theologically speaking. Yeah, and that I'm glad you kind of walked through that. And I'm thinking I want to camp out here a little bit, and then I want to talk to kind of how we 
talk about these and, and wrestle with these things as Christians in a, in, a, in a way that's distinctly Christian. But um, it's interesting how this plays out on different levels, right? So when we talk about first tier, second tier, third tier issues, something that is obviously the first tier, we're talking orthodoxy, right? Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Anglicans that are faithful to scripture and faithfully orthodox that we all agree on, right? Right. But then you have the second tier issues, which divide into denominational commitments. And this is where, you know, it gets interesting where on the local church level, right? A second tier issue like baptism is a second tier issue. Like I wouldn't say a Presbyterian brother who's preaching I love and, and enjoy is a heretic because he believes in infant baptism and right. I believe in believer's baptism. However, at the local church level for membership commitments, it kind of is a first tier issue, right? Like, you know, well, a it's certainly faithful, a boundary maker, a ba- boundary marker. Yeah. For us. Yeah. And so like, you know, I always use this at our church, at our Southern Baptist church. Tim Keller is one of my heroes. Um, and I read all his stuff. He probably couldn't be a member at our at our Baptist church because of his belief on infant baptism. But I probably couldn't be a member at Redeemer either. And some people might look at that and say, man, all these denominations, isn't it terrible? But actually, it seems it's actually in some ways healthy when you have healthy denominations that are catechizing their people, is it not? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, of course, you know, you, there is that 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 third way that some of the even free traditions that offer baptism to both positions where people uh, will they will accept into membership both both uh, both approaches to baptism. Um, but but yeah, I think so. I mean, what we want to say is we we want to be people who follow our biblical convictions. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like there's a certain kind of ecumenical mishmash that people do sometimes where they minimize doctrinal convictions, where they say that they say that your convictions rooted in scripture are little or no significance. And so they would tell you to ignore those things. And uh, I I don't think that that's a a faithful way of pursuing scripture, trying to make sense of scripture and apply scripture. If we have a strong conviction that Jesus commands us to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, as they have been made disciples, then we should we should follow that conviction. And it, again, like you said, it doesn't mean that we that we call someone who disagrees with us on the application there, which is really the the, the issue of the text. Mm-hmm. They believe in baptism, but they they believe that it's applied differently. Uh, it doesn't mean that I that I would discount them as brothers. Or sisters in Christ, or that we can't be co-laborers in the gospel together. But it does mean, you know, for a local church context where discipleship is taking place, that um, we just, we can't be together at that local of a level. Yeah. And it, it, um, one of the things I learned working with Russell Moore was how to be open-handed with, on one level with faithful Christians of another tradition and another denomination and partnership around a lot of key things. And yet uh, fiercely convictional about the way you want your local church organized and the way that that we can do both of those things. So it it does seem it kind of scales down depending on the level of partnership, right? Where, you know, you can even start higher than even that, where like if you're partnering 
say, to feed the hungry, the kind of baseline commitments for those types of things. Or pro-life are, issues with or pro-life issues. Yeah. Or, right. or justice issues that right. the, the, the baseline commitment for those types of things seems pretty loose. But then as you go to, you know, gospel proclamation, evangelism, those types of things, there has to be a baseline level of orthodoxy. Right. And then as right. you go down further, if you go to local church commitments, it has to be a little tighter. And, and again, from my perspective, that's a healthy, a healthy, I, I agree with Richard Mao and, and he wrote a chapter in one of his latest books about how like a, a strong, thick denominationalism makes for a healthy evangelicalism, yeah. right? That if we're all in our traditions, discipling and catechizing, that it makes for a healthy movement overall. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there is a place for what Timothy George calls ecumenicism in the, in the trenches. That's what, that's what, you know, we do when we do partnership with, you know, like again, Catholics or other, or their faith traditions on, on things that are broadly benefiting um, human dignity and religious freedom and that sort of thing. There's value in that. There's also value, I think, in having broader coalitions like uh, the Gospel Coalition or the mm-hmm. Evangelical Theological Society. I mean, these are these are people who come from different faith traditions who are bound together by some unique theological distinctives, like, for instance, inerrancy. You know, that's a that's a big deal for for mm-hmm. for our evangelical camp. Um, and, and in fact, it, it's interesting. You know, I find that I have more in common with an evangelical Presbyterian and an evangelical Methodist on a lot of things than I do a mainline, you know, or, or liberal Baptist, even mm-hmm. though they have similar church polity, um, mm. you know, what core issues like, like inerrancy, um, we have a lot more in common, um, with, with some of our, some of our, our traditions from, 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 from sister denominations. So, uh, yes, but the thing that really makes, again, Mal's point is a pursuit of, a robust ecclesiology where we are, we're not abandoning ecclesiology. We're not abandoning those, those traditions that have been handed to us historically. We're practicing, uh, you know, the, the, the end phrase now is, is theological retrieval. We're reading our traditions and we're letting our traditions speak to us in the present. Um, I do think that that's, that's more important to maintain some sense of identity uh, than than to do to go the way of many ecumenical movements in the past, where when they started letting go of some of those doctrinal distinctives, you found that later down the road they were willing to part with with any doctrinal distinctives or issues. And so a lot of those mainline ecumenical movements of the 1920s and and 30s ended up becoming something more like Unitarianism. Not less, less, less robustly orthodox than maybe the the founders initially started out with. It does seem too that a rootless evangelicalism, the fruits of that are not healthy. That a kind of rootless, sort of no kind of anchors in any denomination or anchors in any kind of church history really ends up flattening and can either become kind of just sentimental or even heretical, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So I want to pivot a little bit and just talk about the way that we disagree. It seems like we get in, we get into problems 
with our disagreements, when we flatten those distinctives, you know, that when we treat a third tier issue, like a first tier issue, uh, that seems like one problem. But number two, you really get into a lot of about, okay, what is the way to disagree? And I, I really think this is an important issue for us as Christians, particularly in an age where we can make all our disagreements super public, right? With the, Mm -hmm. uh, pressing a send or a tap, a few taps of our thumbs, talk about the way that Christians are interacting and disagreeing and ways that we can improve and, and why you felt the need for this book. Well, I mean, Christians have always disagreed about doctrine. I mean, that's nothing new. I mean, and, and, and of course, since the Protestant Reformation, uh, when the Bible was put in the hands of, of every, of every Christian, so to speak, um, that really opened up the opportunity for lots of theological disagreement and lots of splintering uh, in within our theological tradition. So nothing really totally new there. In fact, some of it was pretty violent. Um, if you look to, to Protestant history, you know, things like the Thirty Years War, where people died over their theological convictions and people were persecuted for their theological convictions. However, the thing that's really sort of new in this stage in the game is everybody has a voice in the theological conversation for better or for worse. Every Christian has access to a social media platform of some kind and every Christian can kind of voice their opinion or voice uh, their thoughts on different theological matters. And somewhere along the way, and this happens with not just theological disagreements, but with our political disagreements and our disagreements on just about everything else in our culture. We really dehumanize um, the other. We 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 trend, tend to treat people um, like they're like they're random ideas, like they're disconnected from their humanity. The the analogy I use is it's it's like trench warfare where we where we get down in the trenches and we lob grenades like idea grenades not even thinking about how it impacts or affects another human person on the other side of their digital avatar um i know that in my experience some of the people that i've had heated disagreements with online don't treat me that way in person if i ever encounter them and most people don't act like they do in person, like they do on the internet. I don't know what it is. It's you get this sort of gusto from from not having to see the other person's face, or 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 react to them. The, the, the sort of trolls that you sometimes encounter or deal with. I know mm-hmm. you have your share of those. Yes. Uh, you know they they're they're not. I hope I don't think that most of these people would act that way in 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 face to face encounters. Maybe they would. But I think, broadly speaking, Christians lose sight of how to treat one another online. And so just watching this for years, watching discernment blogs and watching, you know, these guys that that always seem happy to be angry about something, always hypercritical of something. um, It it really, you know, again, provoked me to think, well, have you guys ever stopped to think about how you come to your doctrinal conclusions? And and have you ever stopped to think about, you know, you throw around words like false teacher. Mm-hmm. I wrote an article about this for, for the Baptist Press uh, a week or so ago. I, 
people use that terminology and they don't stop to think about what that even means in the New Testament. It doesn't mean somebody that's wrong on a, on a doctrinal point. It's a, it's a, it's a much more uh, technical term, meaning someone who's in sin. Uh, that's, that's not, that's not necessarily what, what the New Testament means. So I wanted to provoke people to think a little bit more clearly about how they come to their disagreements and, and maybe biblically some strategies to deal with those. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems like, you know, we have two kind of false wrong approaches when it comes to discernment, right. To use that word on the one hand, we have what I think passes for discernment, which is discernment blogs Right. And I'm not going to say they're all bad. I mean, I think there are some people out there doing some good work. Discernment, and I talk about this in my book, that discernment is important. It's all through New Testament. There are false teachers and there is right. wrong doctrine that is dangerous. Uh, on the other hand, I'm, I'm struck by the way that the Bible really urges us in the way that we speak to use gentleness, to use humility, even as Paul is telling Timothy to be on guard against false teachers. He's telling him to be open-handed, to be humble. He's Paul is talking about his own journey to Christ and how he can't really, you know, stand in any meaningful sense because he's a sinner too. So it seems like in, in our approach, you either have folks who think any kind of disagreement or any kind of public response to public false teaching is just mean and nasty. So I think we right. saw this with, with the Rob Bell situation years ago, where to come out publicly, even in a kind and gentle way and say, you know, Rob has essentially left the faith was considered, Oh, how could you be so mean? On the other right. hand, it seems like we have people who feel like every minor disagreement is a matter of orthodoxy, tearing people apart. There's almost like a tabloid approach to, Hey, what sensationalism. New, yeah. What new thing can I find today, you know, that some evangelical leader is doing. So how do we, Ryan, you know, find a healthy way to approach discernment that avoids those two extremes? I would, I would add as a caveat, you know, when the Bible talks about false teaching, the Bible talks about false teaching motivated by greed. Mm. And if you're driven by sensationalism and click counts and you're profiting Mm. largely off of, off of, you know, these sort of disagreements that sometimes, I mean, even the discernment bloggers turn on each other. It's, it's, it's always, they eventually, they eventually will. It's Lord come of back the flies. And, <laughs> I, know, right? I would say in some ways they reflect the definition of false teacher uh, more than, than what they think a lot of times, because it is again, motivated by this sensationalism, this love for controversy, this love to be right. Uh, biblical discernment entails wisdom. And a big part of discernment is knowing when to jump into the conversation and when not to. A big part of the the concept of biblical discernment means not only not only knowing truth in like a in a theological or propositional sense, but also practicing it. And uh, and and I, I feel like so much of what passes for discernment doesn't even fit into that category because it doesn't recognize brothers and sisters in Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't treat them the way that they would treat any sort of disagreement in, in the life of a local church. So the example that I go to in my book 
is is the controversy between uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley, who uh, were major figures in the in the founding of evangelicalism, who parted ways basically over Calvinism and Arminianism. They had a very heated public disagreement that went on for years. In fact, they were writing pamphlets and tracts against each other. I mean, they were they were it was a very very much like a like a public debate sometimes takes shape today. But what happened was they they were personally reconciled to one another. They decided that as image bearers, their their love for one another was ultimately more important than their disagreement. And they never they never resolved the disagreement. I mean of course in heaven now they 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 know probably the, the right answer. Uh, but 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 they didn't in their lifetime resolve it. But they were able to to get past it, they became partners in gospel ministry. Again, they were preaching in each other's churches. Wesley even preached Whitfield's funeral, and uh, it's it's in Whitfield's funeral that that we have for the first time in print the phrase "agree to disagree," and uh, and so it's a remarkable story of God's grace. But one of the things I learned from it was number one, not always assuming the worst in the people with whom we engage, even if you're even if you believe in total depravity, it doesn't mean that you have to assume the worst in every single person that you encounter. It means you don't always jump to the same logical conclusions mm. you that you think your 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 doctrine takes you. So, for instance, in the in the case of Whitley, uh, Whitfield and Wesley, um, Wesley thought that the God of, of Calvinism was a mean, vindictive God, hateful God, nasty God. And Whitfield thought that Wesley was teaching universalism. And just because they saw those ends in those theological systems doesn't mean that 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 the other person saw those ends. It doesn't mean that that Whitfield was serving a vindictive God. It doesn't mean that Wesley was a universalist. So be patient and don't necessarily resort to the make jumping to conclusions. And one thing that I learned from 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 Timothy George, and this was really important, was the importance of praying together. If at all possible, pray with your uh, with your theological opponent uh, and and take time to do that. I've, I've actually picked up the phone and, and called a discernment blogger uh, uh, and and who who spatted with me online once and just I said can we just pray together I don't know if it if it did anything for him but it, it certainly helped me see the way that it changed the way that I was seeing him and I think there's 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 great value in in brothers and sisters praying together through a disagreement we do that in the local church why can't we do that in this socially connected moment across across the globe mm. that's a, that's that's really Really important word. I got a couple more questions before we let you go. There's so much I could ask you about because sure. I'm grateful that you wrote this book. I think it's coming at a really important time. Um, you talk about, I, I'm glad you brought up the Woodfield Wesley uh, thing because I was gonna, actually going to ask you about that. And that's a good model for us. You have a chapter on the role of emotions in the way that we process some of these things. And uh, explain that to us a little bit. And I'd like you to also talk to us about the ability to stand with conviction, but also having a, a kind of open-handed humility, knowing that we we could be wrong on some things. When it came to emotions, 
I always, I always noticed in my own life when I got into theological debates, say with an Armenian friend of mine, we would debate uh, debate whether or not we could lose our salvation, and I took the position that we could not lose our salvation. He would say uh, that we could, and I would walk away like feeling a combination of anger and sadness, anger that he didn't agree with me, sadness that 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 he would he was so misled in his position and he didn't he didn't come to the right conclusion that I did. And I started to learn over time that a lot of my disagreements are that way. Um, I have strong feelings attached to them because I have strong convictions. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm an emotional human being. And um, I think a lot of our disagreements get as heated as they do because you know, it's, it's sort of like uh, somebody picking on your kid. You know, you love this doctrine. You love this theological teaching. You've, you've either been reared in a tradition where this has been something you've known your whole life or, or it's something you've kind of discovered through the long process of interpreting scripture. So I read a, a book by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind. I think many of you have. It's a, it was a very popular book several years ago, um, and Haidt was a is a is a social psychologist who talks about ways in which emotions shape our political debates. And I don't buy into the whole you know sort of Darwinian framework, the the worldview that he has, but I think a lot of the observations that he makes in the data do play out that we tend to we tend to pick sides in debates a lot of times, not because we've reasoned our way to those uh, positions, but because we have these kind of gut feelings, these intuitions that guide us. And oftentimes we're more concerned about proving our gut feeling to be true than finding the truth itself. We're, we're concerned about being identified with a group that shares the same feelings. And so that's that's clearly true in the political spectrum. I think it happens a lot of times in the theological uh, in theological debates as well. Um, and I, I, I cite some examples again from the Calvinism Arminianism debate. You know, you have these quotes from Colin Hansen's book on uh, on the uh, you know the the young restless and reformed, where John Piper says, "Hey, the way that I'm going to I'm going to appeal to people with reformed doctrine is to speak to their hearts first. It's, 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 it's about speaking to their hearts before about speaking to their minds. And I think that's absolutely true. I mean, that was, again, one of my big attractions to John Piper when I was a college student was I've never heard anybody exult over scripture quite like this. This is, this is a new experience to me. And I think a lot of people resonated with that. But then on the flip side, you have Roger Olson, who, who in one of his books explicitly says that uh, if I were to stand before God and I were to find out that, uh, that, that the doctrines of, of Calvinism were true, you know, I, I, I would refuse to worship him because that just, it, 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 he has this, he, he says that it basically stirred in him this sort of emotional reaction. I don't know that I necessarily believe also on that point, but what I, what I do think is we do have, we have gut feelings a lot of times with theological positions and, and maybe with like reform doctrine, it's a sense of security and a sense of 
of peace in God's sovereignty. And for, for Arminian doctrine, on the other hand, it's a sense of God's love and in, in, this, in this feeling that God directs that love to all people in the same way. And, and so we have different sort of emotional emphases that drive a lot of our theological disagreements. At the end of the day, this is, this is not all that different from what Wesley talks about with experience. Experience does play some role in our theological method, but scripture must lord over our experience and scripture must course correct our experience. So I, I say willingly, I, I admit that I, that I have emotions that affect my theological system, but at the end of the day, I want to submit to biblical authority and put those emotions under the lordship of Christ. That's really good. That's a great, great place to end. And I want to encourage everybody to uh, check out this book. It's called When Doctrine Divides the People of God, an Evangelical Approach to Theological Diversity, uh, forward by David Dockery. Uh, we'll have links to it in our show notes. But Ryan Putman, grateful for your work and your ministry and your voice on these things and for just helping Christians learn how to communicate these issues well in a digital age. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at, at @dandarling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash danielmdarling. I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters. Thank you.